This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clark. And welcome back. So, how long do you think it should reasonably take for allegations of child grooming, indecent exposure, sexual assault and violence to be properly investigated by police? Six months, a year, three years, maybe? How about if the alleged abuser was famous, influential, a hero to many? Would that make authorities treat the allegations with even more seriousness, given they would impact not only family and friends, but the wider community? And when those allegations are finally brought to a court in a bid to have them tested by law, you would think they would and should be able to be reported on given their seriousness and their subject. Well, if the case of Barry Thomas Cable is the rule of thumb, then the answers to those questions are these. How long? It took decades for a survivor to finally come forward to tell her story about Barry Cable, the AFL legend and a state sporting icon. It took WA Police just seven minutes before their eventual interview of him was terminated. When it became clear it was Barry Cable that was being accused, the investigation by WA Police went so well, it was eventually investigated itself by a Royal Commission into police corruption. And when it finally came to court, it took nearly five years before Barry Cable was able to be named as the man accused of being a predator an abuser and a liar. One immensely brave woman sits at the centre of all that and we will speak about her in due course. But before we start, obviously this episode talks about child sexual abuse and sexual abuse. Just bear that in mind while you're listening. First, I will introduce that woman's solicitor, the man who fought for her inside and outside court, Michael Magazanic. Welcome, Michael. Tim, thanks for having me. It's a total pleasure being with you. Ah, well, firstly, give us a little bit of your background because your job used to look a little bit more like mine until you stepped over to the side of the angels. <laughs> it's kind of you. <laughs> uh, and, and it's true. I was a journalist for a long time. I did a law degree right after high school and, um, I, you know, I wasn't the greatest student and there were no lawyers in the family didn't really know what the law was. And I've got to say, it felt for me like it was commerce or business or sort of transactional and all about money, which didn't really do it for me. And then at the end of law school, there was an ad on the law court notice board for cadetships at the Age newspaper, the Age newspaper in Melbourne. And to me, that sounded great. And I wanted to escape the law, had never done internships, hadn't done, you know, hadn't worked at a law firm, didn't know what it was. So I applied for the cadetship at the Age and I got it. And that was a revelation to me. I completely loved journalism, totally loved it. It felt like it was, I was made for it and it for me. So, um, you know, asking questions, the freedom in my early 20s, having the licence to ring up anyone and ask <laughs> questions, and they'd usually answer, so you probably <laughs> felt the same way. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, as a journalist, I worked for The Age, uh, the Australian ABC television. I covered law and politics and doing doing sort of a very similar job to what you do, and I was really happy doing it for about 10 years. And then ultimately I got an itch for a whole bunch of personal reasons 
Um, and I'd also figured out what the law was, and it wasn't all about profit and loss, as it turns out. And there were bits of the law that actually fitted me and fitted the way I felt about the world. So I ended up applying to a pretty big plaintiff firm, Slater and Gordon, for for articles, which is the sort of apprenticeship you do as a, do as a lawyer. I got that job. Um, I spent four years in Perth. My, um, my partner and I uh, spent four years in Perth just before we had kids, and I we both loved it there, doing asbestos work. And also it was the genesis, really, of the sort of sexual abuse work that I do a lot of now. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, I worked on a group action for survivors of thalidomide, uh, the drug that mums took during pregnancy and which did terrible damage to their unborn kids. But the, I suppose the bigger point is, and this is something for you to think about, Tim, <laughs> being a journalist, um, as I found when I switched to the law, was th- there's no better preparation for the sort of law that I do than being a journalist. It was better preparation than being a lawyer, really. You know, talking to people, getting their stories, shaping the narrative, writing to deadline, uh, you know, and the other the other really big important thing is, unlike a lot of lawyers, I'm happy to get out of the office, go somewhere, <laughs> knock on the door and try to talk to people. Mm. Lawyers are addicted to the email and the facts in the old days. Um, but, you know, th- those journalist skills were just, you know, were just the best possible prep. And then uh, about five years, uh, seven or eight years ago, actually, I set up my own firm, Rightside Legal, which pretty much brings us up to where we are now. Mm. Yeah, I've always thought lawyers and uh, journalists are sort of cut from the same bit of cloth maybe maybe you know the lawyers are the top half and the the journalists are the more grubby bottom half but um yeah because there's research involved there's talking involved there's gossip involved and uh, you know uh, at some stage there's always drinking involved as well so uh, yeah a million percent <laughs> i'm totally with you and i've tried at various times to recruit um journalists to come work for the firm a bit hit and miss occasionally but I really do think that those skills are for, for sort of personal injury law, the sort of stuff that I do, there's no better skill set than those of a journalist. Mm. Well, so you employed this skill set to this case that we're going to cover today, which started really back in 1965. At that time, a girl aged 10 moved with her family into a home in an outer Perth suburb. They had come back to WA from overseas. They were a normal family, living a nice life in a sunny city. And then, in 1968, that suburb caught a shining star, a football star. Barry Cable was, by that year, one of this state's sporting heroes. He was still only 24 years old, but he was already draped in football glory, having won premierships, best and fairests, a Sandover medal and Simpson medals. And so the presence of himself, his wife and their young child in that street was akin to a homegrown beetle moving in next door. By this time, the shy young girl down the street was 12 years old and she had no clue about football. But Cable was a presence and he made his presence felt. He stood out as he tended to his front garden. The girls and her sister were initially asked if they wanted to help in the garden and then if they could help look after the baby. Then the families became friendly and the 12-year-old girl quickly became sort of an extension of the Cable family. But Cable didn't call her by her name. He had other names for her. My big girl, my special girl. And then one afternoon, he asked that girl if she had ever seen a naked man. Mike, these were obviously more innocent times, more trusting, certainly. But even from that brief summary, we can now identify this as classic grooming behaviour. 
Oh, completely. And, you know, this is a tragic moment, as you've as you've described. She's 12 years old and the road forks left and right. Barry Cable's down the left. You know, the road to the life that she never got to live is down the right. Um, it's just tragic and pathetic. This was a man widely adored and revered, and he targets the neighbour's child. Not, you know, not the young woman who lives next door, not the woman who lives next door, but a 12-year-old child. Mm-hmm. So, you know, behind that front, Barry Cable was a sick man who had a criminal interest in children. Mm-hmm. So it's a cautionary tale. Cable's fame protected him. Nobody wanted to think that that superstar, Barry Cable, that footballing hero, was anything other than the champ. So there are all these warning signs, his grooming behaviour of little kids hanging around them, even walking around naked in front of kids. But nobody, nobody wanted to see what was staring them in the face. So it, it should, it should make us rethink the way we worship people. Yeah. And then, as Mike says, in the early part of 1969, the abuse moved into another phase. Cable was offering to train this young girl, but not in football. Looking back, she remembers it as mere weeks from meeting Cable to him walking around in his underwear, then flashing her, asking her about sex, complimenting her solid legs and big breasts. It was more likely months, but... In those months following her 13th birthday, Cable's self-titled training intensified and the touching began. It was frequent, it was brazen at times, it was callous, and it went on for years. In his car, on trips to pick up fish and chips, if another car drove past, the girl was shoved onto the floor of the car to hide her presence. But Cable would hardly hide. It happened in his front room, in the backyard, at the pool where he worked, at a trip to a television studio, even before and after that young girl's school social. But one incident stood out. One afternoon in 1971, that was one of the seven years that Cable was named as the Perth Demons Football Club Best and Fairest, Cable drove the girl to their home ground of Lathlane Park. In the changing room, where he had moulded his hero status, Cable tried to rape the now 15-year-old girl on one of those worn benches. When he had finished, the girl told him she hated what he was doing. His reply was to hit her so hard in the face that her lip split and the bruise lasted for days. Mike, as a lawyer and an advocate for, for this woman and for many other survivors of sex abuse, these type of stories must be sadly familiar but still shocking they're they're appallingly familiar and child abusers are of course they're uh, disgraceful criminals Uh, they have a sexual interest in kids but they're also cowards they're frequently bullies and they're often violent so the sort of story that this woman told is really familiar but of course you know there's and there's no chance of removing yourself from the emotion of that sort of story as the lawyer. You can't get away from it completely. Mm. But as a lawyer, you have to know what you're there to do. You have to know what your what your job is. And I always regard my job in these cases is to run the claim, is to represent that person as aggressively and as excellently or brilliantly as possible. You've got to knock over the defendant. You've got to give your client the survivor the experience of being believed and fought for. Mm-hmm of restoring a sense of justice and getting the maximum possible compensation. Can't hide from that as a lawyer. That's what I do. Mm -hmm. If I'm representing, say, a man, take a West Australian example, a man who went through terrible things as a child in one of those Christian brother orphanages, 
uh, I am trying to take as much money as possible off the Christian Brothers and put it in my client's pocket because that's where the money belongs. It, putting that money in his pocket can dig him out of poverty for the first time in his life. It might allow him to rent or to buy a place of his own, allow him to seek medical treatment for his psychiatric, psychological injuries, do something for his kids. So that's I know what my role is here and while I do feel the emotion, you can't get away from it. And to some level that emotion is motivating and the the power and the trauma of the story, you, you can't divorce yourself from it, but you've got to know your job and and um, and push that case as hard as you can because the history of these things is that institutions or cable, uh, you know, institutions or individuals do not give money away. They do not put up their hand and say, yep, I'm a child abuser. I should never have done that. Mm. So you have to make them do it, drag them to the finish line. Mm. And is there a balance, Mike, between advocating and then having to um, tiptoe through the law of it and pick out potential legal problems from from the the story that the survivor is telling you, but also um, get making it a little bit personal. It sounds like that's your that's what drives you is to is to really see yourself as a champion for the underdog. The survivors in these cases mostly are. I've never represented a defendant in my life. Never will. Um, so yes, uh, th- that is absolutely. It's a bit, maybe it's a bit simple of me, but that is what drives me. I'm, you know, injustice and trying to restore the balance to some extent. And it's just a massive privilege to fight for these people. So yes, I, fight hard, but you've got to fight cleverly. There's no point being all emotion and no brains. You've got to early on. You've got to think about what they're telling you, and then try to figure out where the legal strength of that argument is, how you marshal the evidence, how it's going to play out in the courtroom. And the more you've done it, of course, Tim, the better you get at it. Mm-hmm. And I've been down, you know, my firm, our firm, my firm, Rotside Legal, has run a lot of these cases to verdict. And it's just going through the trial process. You see where all of this ends up. So if, so when this woman rang me, and I know we'll get to that initial conversation later, <laughs> in the midst of that first conversation, I'm already thinking, how does this play out at trial? How do we persuade a judge or a jury? <laughs> what does this evidence look like? So absolutely, it's all about... Uh, it's all about being just really, really smart and sort of prescient legally. Really, that early in, in, in this particular process, you were thinking that way because a lot of lawyers tell me, oh, no, I don't want to go to trial. It's all about the mediation. It's all about the settlement. But you were thinking, no, let's let's take this this one. I think it's going to take me and us and her all the way. I did think that. And there is a lot of focus by lawyers on mediations and you know, informal conferences and all of that. But you're usually just lowballed at those things, and it's—I <laughs> see it just as a stepping stone to the finish line. Uh, and this one, from the moment uh, this woman started telling me about it, I knew that we were going to find our way into a courtroom because there was no chance Cable was going to admit it. Cable had constructed his life around a central lie that he was a hero and a legend and a great man, whereas in fact the truth was he was a criminal, a pedophile, child abuser. Um, there was no way he was going to voluntarily say, well, here's a bucket of cash and I'm sorry, um, because his life would fall apart. His life as he knew it was going to fall apart. He was going to come out of the Hall of Fame, which eventually happened, and off the honour boards and the statues were coming down. So I knew that this would go all the way to the finish line. And so right from the start, I was thinking about how do we make this case? Hmm. So Barry Cable, the footballing icon, and this scared, scarred young woman connected by a terrible secret. As is now commonly recognised, survivors of sexual abuse commonly cannot divulge to anyone for many reasons and for many years. Shame, guilt, hope that it will all just go away and fear. In this case, 
a fear that if this young woman did not do what Cable wanted, he might move on to her younger sister. Slowly, as she grew older, she was able to untangle herself from Cable. His move uh, east to play for North Melbourne also created some distance. And she was determined to try and create some more and to try and find some peace. So she moved to Europe, eventually returning to Australia as a young adult in 1974. But Cable was still there in her life. And at one point, bizarrely, naked in her mother's kitchen after he walked into the house with no clothes on. He was also always in her head and in her diaries. She had kept a diary since age 10. And those kept between the late 60s and early 70s contained the day-to-day, as well as other things. Initials and symbols, which she would later say, indicated who was doing what to her. What that abuse left behind was layers of trauma. Anxiety, insomnia, nightmares, self-harm, despair, an eating disorder, and eventually a diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. But before all that, Cable would not go away. In 1979, he almost lost his leg and his life when a tractor ripped his calf clean off on his hobby farm. In public, his recovery was hailed as another example of his indomitable will, more courage. But behind the story was the reality, a demand from him that the young girl who had looked after his baby now looked after him. Still cowed from the childhood control, she was unable to resist and as, ad- as an adult, so she agreed. And still, Cable wouldn't take no for an answer. Like at this stage, this young girl is a woman of 24. And in the past, the thinking might have been this continued contact may have you know, raised questions such as why didn't she say no or why didn't she just leave? But we now know um, it's, it's just not that easy. It's not. And Tim, I reckon you're being kind. I think that thinking is not just in the past. I think it's today as well. There'd be plenty of people out there thinking, why didn't this young woman, early 20s, just cut off all contact? But of course, it's impossible. And and we know that. And there's a whole lot of, you know, medicine and psychology and psychiatry around why it's impossible. And it's almost the same thing as happens to women in violent personal relationships Mm -hmm. to adult women. Except with kids, the power imbalance is so much worse. The abuser gains control over the child, and even as that child ages, he or she never leaves that sense of having lost all control behind. They're in thrall to the abuser, and it's impossible to stop. Their brains, the child's brains are so scrambled by the abuse, mm-hmm. their sense of self-worth so damaged, their boundaries so ruined, as well as their ability to navigate relationships. They just cannot extricate themselves, and it. And that inability to extricate themselves as they age just worsens the guilt and the shame. And it's a reinforcing cycle where everything gets worse. You can't escape. The guilt gets worse. The shame gets worse. The dysfunction gets worse. And and if people just stop to think about that, they'll they'll you know they won't continue to question why abused kids become abused adults. Mm-hmm. I've always thought about the on the flip side the positive influence say a teacher or a, a, a really good sporting coach can have on a on a young mind and a young body at a young age that will stay with you for adulthood and I've always thought why don't people then just flip that over and think 
what if that teacher was really bad to me? What if that coach was really bad to me? All those positive feelings that I take on to my life, flip those over again, the dark side, that's, that's, that's what happens. And that's obviously what happened in this case because Cable was coaching her in his own words. He was. That's right. And it, and you're so right. That is a great way of looking at it. And, you know, I know we, we've got, Nicole and I have got three little kids and I am so grateful to their to their teachers. You know, most of whom are fantastic. You know, all of whom are fantastic. And so the, the, the influence those great teachers have on those kids is profound. Um, and, and the reverse is just, it's even worse. Like it's, mm. you know, it is devastating. And you know, abuse victims, the, the Royal Commission, which spent years and years looking at this problem in Australia, the, abuse, the Royal Commission found that it takes men somewhere between 30 and 40 years to report their abuse as kids. That's mm-hmm. how damaged they are. They, mm-hmm. can't, they can't think about it. They can't talk about it. They can't do any of that without blaming themselves. And it's, it just echoes through the generations, really, and it's, it's impossible. It's often, often impossible to escape. Mm. So <clears throat> in this case, it would not be until 1998 following years of hiding and denying and intensive therapy that the young woman, targeted by Barry Cable as a young girl, plucked up enough courage to go to the WA police to ask them to listen. What prompted that was an episode of Australian Story featuring Cable which mentioned his ongoing work with vulnerable Indigenous youth. The thought of those children was enough to replace her fear with a fire to reveal the truth about this hero. And so, armed with her memories and her diaries, the women went in and told her story. The allegations were detailed, they were credible, and the detectives who interviewed her believed her. They wanted Cable charged. Memos, since revealed, confirmed that police were firm in their belief that the footballing superstar should be charged. One of those memos reads, Mr Cable will be interviewed and charged with approximately 12 to 14 offences on Monday, November 2, 1998. That interview actually happened on November 17, 1998. And when police arrived to take Barry Cable in, his response was not typical. Come in, I've been expecting you, is what he said. Mike, from what we now know, why would Barry Cable have been expecting police to come calling? Well, because he'd been warned by his buddies in the police force, but also because he knew he was a child molester and it, and he knew that uh, this woman that we're talking about today wasn't the only child he'd molested. He'd molested plenty of women, as we'll discuss, plenty of children, as mm-hmm. we will discuss later. Mm-hmm. So he knew the walls were closing in, but really, the, ultimately, he got a tip-off from his buddies in the police force. And I think, Tim, it's worth mentioning that, you know, the two police officers who wanted him changed, or two of the police officers who wanted him charged, I should say, Chris Italiano and Joe Connolly, um, they had spent a lot of time with the woman, taken an incredibly detailed and lengthy statement, mm-hmm. Uh, talked to witnesses, considered the entire circumstances. These were experienced police officers and experienced in sexual crimes. Mm -hmm. They wanted him charged. They never got their way, of course. Um, And those women, those police officers, left the police force. And this whole episode and the sort of political controversy that eventually surrounded it and damaged their careers, they left the police force. But they stuck by this woman Mm -hmm. for years and years, attended parts of the trial and certainly came to a celebration with us after the results. So those, those two police officers, Chris Italiano, Joe Connolly, big part of the story. Yeah. So 
Those allegations of elevated interference made up part of the sittings of Western Australia's Kennedy Royal Commission into potential corruption in the WA police force that was held in 2002. The potential presence of Barry Cable in one of those hearings was not widely known. In fact, one person who witnessed his first arrival remembers an audible gasp as he walked into the hearing room. Inside, now, everyone knew who he was. But outside, his name, or even the sport he played, was banned from publication. In reportage of the hearings, he was to be known as Q2. And he sat in the middle as Commissioner Jeffrey Kennedy sat as an umpire between a heated blue on blue blue. Between the detectives, who were sure Cable should have been prosecuted, and the brass, who decided he wouldn't be. The apex of that was Deputy Police Commissioner Bruce Brennan, who it became clear had a very friendly relationship with Barry Cable, which included a photograph of them together on his office wall. And it was even revealed the pair had taken a bike ride around the Swan River just after Mr Cable had been briefly interviewed by those detectives. And it also revealed one of Mr Brennan's top men, Superintendent David Caporn, was tasked with closely reviewing the Cable file. Both insisted there was nothing unusual in that. The fact that Cable's interviews by detectives was terminated after just minutes was also no biggie. And when Cable was personally quizzed about his accuser and her allegations on the stand in the commission, he confirmed he may well have had sex with her, but it was consensual and she was an adult at the time. Mike, that young woman, who is now not so young, has since told me that the Royal Commission was perhaps the very worst of her experience in the justice system. And listening to all that, you can understand why. You can. And it, that's interesting to me, Tim, because I've never had that conversation <laughs> with her. Or she's never told me that that was the low point of all of this. And for it to be the lowest point, that must have been a terrible series of days because this has been a long, long journey for her. You know, the, the police refusing to charge Cable and then the years of legal powerlessness where she had no, no option. And then, you know, a, a marathon five-year uh, civil claim. So for that to be the low point is saying something. But mm. if I think about that, uh, the police had refused to charge him. She'd been, nobody had taken her seriously except for those few police officers. She was locked in this frustrating legal maze with no way out, just a hopeless legal jungle where nobody except those few police officers were were, were willing to look at the truth of the matter at ac what actually happened to her because this Royal Commission and the crime and corruption hearing that also happened around that time were looking at whether there had been police corruption in the failure to charge him. None of these people were looking at, did he sexually abuse her as a child? Mm. Has he sexually abused other people? What's he really done? So I do understand, now you put it to me, I, I do understand why that would have been just a demoralising, uh, you know, terribly unhappy experience for her. Yeah. Um, she told me that even seeing him after all those years um, left her breathless. She was made to walk in the front door, whereas Cable was brought up in the lift um, to avoid public scrutiny outside. And then when he started and she had to watch him relaying the fact of their relationship, as he called it, affair um, on the stand, it left her 
feeling physically sick and it just goes to that underdog status and the fact that she'd felt powerless for all these years she'd finally plucked up the courage and then it seemed the system was completely against her so I, I was slightly surprised when she told me that as well Mike but thinking about it as I dr drove back after that conversation I could completely understand why because not only yeah. had her bodily integrity been stripped away but also her um, apparently her, her words and her story and her truth as well. That's right. And the system was still treating this bloke who, and she knew what he really was. The system still treating this bloke as if he's a hero and she's some sort of uh, person to be doubted. Mm. You would hope that this is the early 2000s, right? 2001, 2002, yep. somewhere around there. You'd hope that the world has moved on. I mean, uh, we've had a Royal Commission. We've had, I think that the public's perception of these sort of sort of things has changed. There's no longer a kind of bias against believing an abused person about what happened to him or her. And I would hope that if there were another kind of uh, you know, inquiry like this, that the alleged perpetrator wouldn't be given kid glove treatment and the, and the victim grilled in the way that she was. It's a, it was a horribly unfair process. And I think people involved might look back on that and think we could have handled that a little differently. Mm. Ultimately, Commissioner Jeffrey Kennedy concluded that there had been contact between senior police and Barry Cable during the time he was being investigated for child sex offences. But that conduct, they said, did not rise to misconduct. It was merely unwise, if not foolish. And despite the belief of detectives, senior prosecutors eventually concluded he could not be criminally charged, which left one young woman believed by detectives, but still bereft. So she tried to move on. And she did move on. A marriage, a successful, fulfilling career, friends, family, hobbies, and a grudging acceptance of what must be. She'd come forward, she'd been listened to, but her story would seemingly go untold. Until 2018, when a change in WA law removed the time limit for sexual abuse survivors to sue their abusers. And that prompted a conversation with Michael Magazanik of Right Side Legal, who specialise in historic child sex abuse claims. Mike, what was that first conversation like? I'm memorable, <laughs> and I'm I'm just really, <laughs> I remember it really clearly now. I can I can hear her voice, uh, and I'm really grateful, really really grateful, and very fortunate that she chose to bring me. Um, it was, you know, she gave me a history with. An enormous backstory, just an enormous backstory. Going to the everything that happened to her as a child, the identity of the perpetrator, going to the police as a young woman, being knocked back, a royal commission, another commission hearing, all those years when she was legally powerless and couldn't do anything, the ongoing relationship with the police officers, you know, the, the law reform, the the law reform which was happening right then, as you've said in WA, which is giving survivors rights, and so it was. Uh, it felt, uh, and she was calm. And she was credible and she was exceedingly likeable. Uh, and as I said earlier, I knew this was going to take a long, long time because I knew that Cable was never going to fess up to anything. But when you're having that conversation, when I was having that conversation, I was thinking to myself, it's going to take ages, it's going to take years. How do I feel about, how do I feel about being locked into this with this woman I'm speaking to now? And it felt right. It felt good. Mm. I, I liked her. I believed her. She was credible. She was. She listened. She spoke. She was articulate. I thought, if I'm going to be stuck in the trenches, 
with someone for years. This is who I want to be stuck with, mm. uh, and it's going to be a it's going to be a pleasure. And it and it turned out exactly that way. She never, that was not a front in that first phone call. Um, she never wavered over the. It took four and a half years, more than four and a half years from that point to the finish line, which is the longest it's ever been in any of my cases. Mm. But and that was for all sorts of reasons to do with delaying tactics by Cable and his lawyer. But uh, her could humour her tolerance, her patience for the process, her patience for my, you know, endless, repetitive at times questions and probing and everything else never waned. She was a dream to work with and just maximum respect for her. And so I guess uh, this is where I come in. A colleague, (laughs) a colleague had the most credible of tips about the claim that um, Mike and Right Side Legal had eventually lodged with the West Australian courts. The name, Barry Cable, the allegations, sexual, and the history of it, which was long. And so myself and friend of the podcast, Shaman Hampton, went digging, which is where we also hit several significant brick walls. The main one of which being, once we eventually found out that the claim was in, we were also prohibited from naming Mr. Cable or the sport he played for many, many years. In the meantime, Cable and his loyal lawyer tried twice and failed twice to get the claim permanently canned. He took one of those to the Court of Appeal and lost there as well. And so, after more than four years, and Mr Cable's loyal lawyer actually dead from cancer, the civil trial titled ZYX versus JD was due to start until with days to go Mr Cable filed for bankruptcy and told the court so. Michael what did he think that bankruptcy would mean for the trial? He thought that was the end of it he really thought that was it done over he thought this was his rabbit out of the hat right at the end he thought a that we wouldn't be allowed to take him to trial given that he was a bankrupt and that uh, we wouldn't. We just wouldn't do it. We wouldn't want to do it because what lawyer would possibly want to pour hundreds of thousands of dollars into a trial when there was no prospect of getting any money out of the defendant at the end of it? So he thought he'd done it. That was the trick all over. But, of course, it wasn't. Um, we were allowed to go to trial with a bankrupt, and we wanted to go to trial with a bankrupt. It didn't matter to us. Our, our client wanted to hold him accountable. It, it didn't matter to her in the end that he was a bankrupt and wouldn't be able to pay her a cent. And frankly, from our part, we were in this to the finish line. It didn't matter if we were never going to be paid. We wanted to honour our commitment to this woman and see it through to the end. And the fact that he tried to squib out of it by declaring bankruptcy made no difference in the end. We were taking him to trial, Mm. full stop. And what it meant was that the claim was effectively undefended. It meant that there was no cross-examination of our client, no attacks on her credibility, a shorter trial, much more manageable process, and so uh, I think it was an enormous miscalculation on his part. He would have lost anyway. He would have lost because uh, all those other witnesses came forward, as we'll get to in a moment. But uh, it was a bad miscalculation, mm. and it wasn't his rabbit out of that. Mm. And the fact that that trial was now going ahead prompted Judge Mark Heron to do something else. He asked for submissions about why Mr Cable's name should remain suppressed. The short answer, at least from our point of view, was that it shouldn't be. So we put on application to have that suppression order lifted and Judge Heron agreed, meaning that 45 years on 
from when he first showed that unhealthy interest in that girl, his name could be connected to the allegations without impediment. And within hours of that being so, the full allegations against him were then made public before that little girl, now a woman in her 60s, sat in a court and told her story. And this time, everyone was listening. Good afternoon. The full extent of the horrific allegations against Barry Cable were laid out today as the woman who says he abused her continued giving evidence on the witness stand. Her testimony was heartbreaking. The 67-year-old described hating herself and wanting to take her own life in the midst of her alleged abuse in the 19th... Mike, I've spent a lot of time in court, probably not quite as much as you, but that was still an extraordinary couple of days, just sitting there and listening to this woman finally be able to tell her story as hard as it was for her to tell. Uh, it was gut-wrenching, and you're sitting there you know, at the lawyer's table, feeling completely helpless. It was mm. gut-wrenching and difficult and so visibly painful for her. You remember it. I do. This was a, oh, this was a, a really smart, really eloquent professional woman who was trying to tell her story in the witness box. But when she was in that witness box, as is always, almost always the case, the trauma descended and it was excruciating and painful for her to get the words out. They mm. came out slowly and bit by bit and it was visibly a massive massive effort um extraordinary effort so and that was you know that was without cross-examination that was telling the story to our barristers so mm -hmm. it was extraordinary and it, it also felt momentous it was the you know 50 years she'd wanted to tell that story she tried to tell it to the police she tried to tell it to commissions of inquiry she'd been silenced by the state of the law the fact that you couldn't sue your perpetrator after a particular period of years had elapsed and and now she was getting a chance and it was this it was this uh, enormous struggle uh, with the trauma and with the grief to get that story out. It was amazing. Mm. Can I, um, Tim, there's, there's one other thing. I want to go back to what you said earlier. Yeah. I mean, you and I, for years, you and I both turned up at these directions hearings in this case, these little mini hearings where we'd argue about this or that or Cable's lawyer would try to get us kicked out of court <laughs> and try again and try again, never give up. And we'd both sit there and for different reasons, I think, we both desperately wanted that suppression order lifted. I know you wanted it lifted. Obviously, it was a better story with his, with his name out there, and I wanted it lifted because, because with his name out, we had one witness locked in early. So we had our client, and we had other one other woman, an incredibly brave woman, who'd come to us early on to tell us that Cable had also abused her. And I remember early on when the when the suppression order was in place, you wrote a front page piece in the West that wasn't allowed to mention his name or even the sport in which this guy had been famous. And I, I, you'll probably remember that it was something like sports icon accused, yep. something like that. I, and, I can't <laughs> tell you the arguments that I had with our lawyers about what I, how I was, um, what, what I was allowed to call him um, or how I was allowed to describe him. Um, and the word icon became a bit of a touchstone for his lawyers and our lawyers, and we went back and forth, and that's what we well, that's what we um, landed on. And then, yeah, I remember it. Four yeah. days and days and days, I got more texts about that um, anonymous story than I think all of my time in the West, and they were all, who is it? Who is it? And then the guessing game started. And as much as that was, you know, uh, that's by the by, the the point that that I was trying to make to our lawyers that we should just keep 
um, plugging away was it could have been anyone. It could have, like there was a, there's a lot of sporting icons in Western Australia, and some yeah. of them would have been tarred with his brush. That was my argument, and that was that was my argument to our lawyers that we should keep you, you, we should be able to narrow it down enough so you, you're not thinking it's a cricketer or you're not thinking it's a and so the fact that they took away the football. Um, or the court um, said we couldn't mention football was hugely frustrating to me because I just thought that was more protection than than was warranted um, in in this particular case, um, and obviously personally more protection than than Cable deserved because by that time I, I was uh, I was aware of at least some of the allegations against him. And I agree with you. And I, you know I wanted that um, I wanted him identified, of course, because. Well, a I did I did feel sorry for all the other sports icons in WA to be tarred by that, <laughs> cricket and hockey or whatever, mm. water polo, whatever. You know, you got lots of them. I agree, um, but what I wanted, I, I knew if you, I knew that Cable had offended repeatedly against all sorts of women, your girls, children, and I knew that once his name was out there, or once he was somehow identified, that we'd get calls from people who'd be willing to give evidence against him. And so when you ran that story that wasn't allowed to identify him, I was hoping against hope that people would get in touch. Mm. Didn't happen. Uh, and then, so when on the eve of trial, you made the application and the judge lifted the suppression order, I knew that that was the damn breaking. Mm. And sure enough, uh, as the trial got started, we started to get calls from people who as children had been abused by cable. And that made a massive difference because mm. up to that point, there'd been our client and this one other woman and now there were more people telling exactly the same story about him. They were similar ages. He was, uh, you know, opportunist. These were people, these were children that he knew. They Broad daylight and the manner of the sexual assaults was exactly the same. So it was frustrating for years and years that he was prevented by, we shared that frustration, Tim. <laughs> he, was, he was protected by this suppression order when I knew that there was a whole lot more going on. And if we could just get rid of that, we'd get there. We did it on the eve of trial thanks in no small part to you. And that, that made that lifting of the suppression order made a massive difference. Yeah. And mid-trial, I mean, so you're in the middle of a big trial, right? you've done all the preparation, and then you get three more witnesses that you have to um, research, presumably, to make sure they're legitimate, then to proof, and then to um, ensure them that, that coming forward is, is, is not going to ruin their lives. And in fact, it's the right thing to do. And you're doing all that in the middle of a trial. I mean, that must have been hectic. It was crazy. It was crazy, but it was also a huge relief. Uh, there were others. So there were three women that we actually presented in court as witnesses. We got a handful of other calls. They weren't they weren't as strong and they weren't as impactful. These three women we chose because uh, one of them approached us uh, completely independently of the other two, uh, and then the other two, and they all knew each other. Two of them were sisters, uh, and they all came to us kind of independently, and they had been, when Cable was coaching North Melbourne and then VFL in the early 1980s, two of these two girls had lived next door and then they had a friend who visited occasionally and uh, they told completely consistent stories and reinforced one another about the way in which Cable sexually assaulted them as children. And this wasn't, you know, I was confused about her age or it was a nightclub or she, she was 18 and looked 24. Not, none of that. I'm not excusing any of that. But this was... These were daughter of his neighbour and one of them was a visitor and in the spa in broad daylight during the middle of the day, he sexually assaults those children. And, and when these women, incredibly brave, 
uh, said that they were happy to come to court, prepared to come to court. Happy is the wrong word. They were prepared to come to court because they wanted justice to be done. None of them had their own claims. None of them had any financial interest. Uh, they were prepared to give their stories, and I knew that that was massively powerful. Yeah. And on the other side of the court was an empty chair. After Barry Cable informed the court he would not be participating in the trial in person. But he did send in a statement. Part of that statement read, I've had no choice but to remain silent during the trial. This is out of no disrespect to the court, but out of fear of being ambushed by the plaintiff's lawyers. Mike, that's got to be the longest ambush in history, hasn't it? Four and a half years. <laughs> it was a ridiculous ambush. And, you know, the the nonsense, four and a half years of paying for a lawyer working effectively around the clock, and then on the eve of trial he declares bankruptcy. Well, just that's calculated nonsense. Uh, he had the resources to fund this for years and then cowardly pulls the pin on the eve of trial. But, you know, the, the, the attack on the, the plaintiff... Uh, and the unwillingness to turn up, just cowardly and gutless. But what would you expect? And so, 45 years after the alleged abuse began, 25 years after that survivor first went to police, Judge Heron handed down his judgment. And it was scathing. It is out there, it is public, you can read it. But this paragraph, for me, summed it up. The evidence establishes a pattern of sexually inappropriate behaviour towards young girls aged 10 to 12 whom Cable had befriended through his friendship with their parents and of the other accusers. He awarded over $800,000 in damages, which obviously now will likely never be paid because of Cable's bankruptcy. But as you said, Michael, before, it was never about the money. Never at all. And, and you've spent a lot of time with this woman, Tim, and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree. Plaintiffs or people bringing claims often say it's not about the money, it's about the principle. And sometimes that's true. And sometimes, well, in almost every case, the money helps. But for this woman, for this woman, it really, not for a second ever, was it about the money. It was about restoring uh, the balance. It was about correcting the historical record. And it was about unmasking cable pulling away his mask as a football hero and exposing him for what he was, which was a pedophile. So she didn't want his money. She wanted the truth to out. And, and that's what she was after from, from, from the very start. And it was just a massive honour to represent her um, and stand by her and fight for her and then, um, and then, you know, get done what she wanted done out of this litigation, which was to show everyone that she'd been telling the truth for decades. And I was also honoured to be invited to that survivor's home for a lunch a few weeks ago. And we drank too much wine and laughed, mostly, because she is in a better mental place than she has been for years. As for Barry Cable, when Seven News caught up with him a few weeks ago, he didn't seem that worried. Look, come on. This, is, this is your come chance. On. Come on. This is your chance, Barry. Your reputation's been trashed. You've been taken out of the Hall of Fame. Everyone's Mate, abandoned come on, you. I know. Come on, come on. I know, they're very annoying. Come on. What's annoying? Come on. Oh, we're very... annoying. You must have something to say, Barry. Will you be talking to the police? Would you would you be speaking to them, do you think? What about your victims? That's probably the part you should address. Your victims. The court found that you'd sexually assaulted them. They fined you $800,000, which you can't pay because you bankrupted yourself. 
This is our property, Bottle. Could you say a few words to them? This is our property. That was Seven News' Jeff Parry, our bulldog, catching up with Barry Cable as he walked his dog. And he said all that despite him being booted from the AFL Hall of Fame, where he used to be a legend and losing all his various other accolades. He might be a little bit more concerned if he'd heard Police Commissioner Colin Blanche say this. I want to give the uh, public assurance in relation to the way we conduct child abuse investigations and also sex assault investigations. If a complainant comes forward, uh, we deal with them with the utmost compassion and care. Mike, uh, thanks so much for sparing uh, your time to take us through this momentous case today. Um, It's been a a privilege for me to talk to you today and also to be having dealt with you over the last few years. So thanks. Uh, Tim, you're welcome. And the privilege was mine. And thank you so much for your attention to this case and your coverage of of it on the way through as well. And a postscript, as I usually do. We've been trying to get Mike to come on here for weeks now, but he's been a little bit busy. For the past three weeks, he has been in court in Victoria suing the Western Bulldogs AFL Football Club because they failed to protect a young man from a predatory paedophile and club volunteer, Graham Hobbs. Yesterday, the jury in that case came back and awarded a $5.9 million compensation payout to that man, the largest jury payout ever awarded to a survivor of sex abuse in this country. Mike, that must have been another big day in your career. Uh, it, was, it was a huge day, Tim. I, I didn't get much sleep last night, I have to be honest. And I got together with my client, Adam, who's been named publicly and he's happy to be named publicly, got together with Adam and his wife, uh, Natasha, for breakfast this morning and just went over what had happened yesterday. It's, it's hard to believe. It's Again, it's a massive journey for Adam and and that sort of result, and that's a jury, and we've not had jury verdicts for sexual abuse survivors in Australia previously. No. So that jury listened to his story, and unlike lawyers, I don't think lawyers have a real idea of what pain and suffering is worth, and this jury listened to that story and then gave a figure for pain and suffering, which is six times as much as the judge has ever given. So we're in a new world. It's an earthquake through the legal system, and it's a, it's a really, really, yesterday was a really, really important day for abuse survivors across the country. Mm. And... Maybe, just maybe, the the stories that are now being told and being listened to are actually being put um, at the level that they should have been um, certainly um, 45 years ago, but in, in all the years since, given that amount of, of money that, that, that the jury has, has chosen to award. Absolutely. I think the legal landscape is tilted back at least to level playing fields for, for plaintiffs now, for survivors... Historically, survivors have had legal obstacles stacked in their path. It was hopeless. It was just a completely unfair fight, like fighting with one hand tied behind your back. But that's changed now. And for survivors with proper, forceful, even, dare I say, aggressive legal representation, you can, you can get proper compensation now. So, Mike, thanks again for joining us on Court in the Act. If you've got any questions or cases you want explored, then please email us at courtintheact at wanews.com.au. And also, remember, if you want to know what's going on in court, don't get caught short. Get caught in the act instead. See you next time.